From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, Jr. lots to talk about this week. Democratic Attorney General Josh Call is refusing to join a multi-state settlement with OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. About half the states reached a tentative deal last week with the company over its role in the nation's deadly opioid epidemic. Purdue Pharma will reportedly pay up to $12 billion to settle the multi-state lawsuit. But Call indicated that amounts to a pittance. Then his spokeswoman said Call will continue to pursue Wisconsin's case. What are his reasons for not joining the multi-state settlement, and why does he want to go it alone? Uh, basically, it's because he says it's inadequate. And that's actually, um, if you look at the attorneys general around the country involved in these lawsuits, it's kind of breaking down along partisan lines where Democrats are saying this is not enough, or Republicans can okay with it. What's unique about Call is that he has a separate state lawsuit. If you recall, uh, his predecessor, Brad Schimmel, a Republican, declined to join the multi-state suit. So after Call took office in a window when he had the power to do so, he filed a state suit on his own. He'll keep pursuing that. Kind of the other fascinating thing about this case in Wisconsin is that, don't forget, this is now a prime example of what's happening with the standoff between Call and the Republican-controlled Joint Finance Committee about the new authority for lawmakers to review settlements. Um, we found out the first time last week that when Call went for the committee uh, back in August to discuss a multi-state settlement, this was the case he wanted to discuss. Um, at the time, he wouldn't even say what the case was. And it's bringing into focus the real-world um risks that are, are out there if we can't reach an agreement between the AG and joint finance on how to pr- proceed because there are dollars at stake. Now, you know, he calls not joining the settlement, so he's not reached a deal yet in his suit. But the whole thing about the standoff has been that it's, it's kind of in the abstract because you have this real processy story of lawmakers and attorney general kind of barking back and forth over how they do something. If the state were to lose out on a settlement or miss a deadline or something like that that cost real dollars, that would up the stakes. That would really bring it home for taxpayers. Here we have a role example of um, the the challenges of what's going on in the Capitol between Joint Finance and the Attorney General. Do you see any movement in this stalemate in the near future? Well, they can't even agree on who should go next in terms of proposing something new in terms of the process. Um, the real problem at this point is that there is no trust in that relationship between uh, the co-chairs of the Joint Finance Committee, John Nigra and Alberta Darling, and Josh Call. Um, you know, back in August when Call went before the Joint Finance Committee, he wouldn't even say what the case was, you know, what the parties were. Now his agency is acknowledging yes. It was about Purdue Pharma. And Republicans want to know, well, how come you can even tell us that back in August? Why is it okay to say it now when before you were telling us we had to be sworn to secrecy? There's just not a trust factor there. And in politics, if there's no foundation of trust, there's nothing to build a process off of. I mean, they need to have some kind of understanding going forward. And, you know, in talking to people last week, there are Democrats who told me that Republicans, you know, this is basically their fault. They approved a law in December. They gave them the authority to 
oversee these law these settlements, but didn't lay out specifically in the law how it should happen. I had Republicans saying, no, if Call wanted to make this work, he could. He's just trying to muck things up to make a point. And maybe he is, but I don't know of any attorney general, regardless of party, who would want somebody else looking over his or her shoulder on every single case that goes through the Department of Justice because there are hundreds of them. I mean, it's just kind of nature of, of running an agency. You don't want to have somebody second-guessing you or having that oversight. And quite frankly, Republicans, I'm sure, they only want to really know about the big cases. And that's their concern, that they don't trust that Call is properly tra- you know, depositing monies from settlements in the general fund like he's supposed to, that he's going to look out in the interest of the state, which you know, their view, the interest of the state, they want to have a hand in the big cases. The small ones, they don't, I don't know if they really want to be that engaged in. But here you have a process that catches both big and small cases, and they don't have something laid out in specifics yet how it's going to work, and it's just kind of slowing things down. On another topic, former Republican U.S. Senate candidate Leah Vukmir says she will not run for the seat that's being vacated by Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner. She was one of the highest-profile Republicans considering running to replace Sensenbrenner, who says he won't seek re-election in 2020. Are you surprised that Vukmir is bowing out of this one? Uh, some people I talked to were a little bit surprised. They thought she'd be a strong candidate. I mean, the debate I had heard about her before her announcement was that on the one hand, she's well-known in the area. Um, she's from the voter-rich part of that congressional district, which is Waukesha County. So that would be an advantage for her. She ran statewide last year, so she's you know, been through a campaign. The things are that were negative were that campaign last year didn't really get off the ground very well. Um, she lost to Tammy Baldwin statewide by 10 points in a year when Scott Walker lost to Tony Evers by roughly a point. So she kind of underperformed. So there's some question of would voters hold that against her. But what people noted to me was in her announcement, she said that she's enjoying the quote unquote personal freedom of working for the National Taxpayers Union. To people I talked to, that was a sign of, you know, one, you know, she's in the private sector making a private sector check versus being um, in office and getting paid what state lawmakers do. And two, you know, you're out of the fishbowl. When you're on the campaign trail, especially in a race for Congress, U.S. Senate, governor, you have somebody basically following you all the time because they have these things called trackers now that they go around the camera and they follow you every time you're in public. They're watching you. You're constantly under scrutiny. Just get out of that fishbowl to have time with her family. It just seemed like a more attractive thing to Leah from people I talked to versus the grind of another campaign. So now with Vukmir out of the picture, who's all still in and who else is out in the Sensenbrenner seat? Well, those who announced her out last week include Dale Cuyenga, state senator from Brookfield, Waukesha County Executive Paul Farrow. Those still looking at it include um, Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald from Juneau, um, State Senator Chris Kappinga of Delafield as Republican. He looks like he's likely getting in. Um, more Republicans, Matt Walker, son of Governor Scott Walker, uh, Matt Newman, son of former Congressman Mark Newman, are both looking at it. State Representative Adam Nalen looking at it. Um, Kevin Nicholson ran for U.S. Senate in 2018. He's looking at it. So, I mean, it's, it, right now the, it's like a game of chess where as each piece moves forward, somebody else moves off the board. So now Leah's off the board and Dale um, and Farrell, you know, others are kind of moving, okay, where's, what's their lane to run? What, what constituency could they use as their base? Um, for example, Scott Walker and Leah Vukmir had a lot of overlapping kind of political circles. So with Leah out, that might help with Matt Walker possibly, uh, but they're all trying to figure out what's their lane, what's the argument they can make to run, 
you know, for, you know, can't forget Ben Volkel, an aide to U.S. and Ron Johnson. So Ben and the Mats, they're both younger candidates. Um, they can make a generational change type argument. You know, Kevin Nicholson, they're kind of wild. Oh, Adam Nalen, too, who's also a younger candidate. Um, Kevin Nicholson. For Fitzgerald, he can make the argument of experience. You know, he liked Chris Capia. They were there in the Capitol for the fights over Act 10 that Governor Walker pushed. Uh, Fitzgerald was a driving force being right to work. So there are all these kind of lanes are trying to figure out where, what's their lane in this race, um, who's going to get in, who has a lane that they think they can be successful in. And quite frankly, I'm talking about Republicans so much because it's such a Republican seat that whoever wins that primary next August is almost guaranteed the next congressperson from the 5th Congressional District. And finally, in northern Wisconsin, we've got another race going on. GOP State Senator Tom Tiffany made it official last week. He's running for Republican Congressman Sean Duffy's seat. Duffy is stepping down later this month because of family reasons. Another Republican state senator from that district at the same time, Jerry Petrowski, says he won't run. In this case, a special election will be held. Does it look like the GOP is clearing the way for Tom Tiffany to be the Republican candidate? Uh, no, we've got uh, Jason Church, who's an aide to U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, um, Army vet, uh, double amputee after he was injured in Afghanistan, um, Fernando Fritz Riveron, uh, who's a thoracic surgeon in Wausau. They're both looking at a bid as a Republican, uh, the Mozanie mayor. I believe Mr. Jacobson, he's looking at a run. So they're all just like in the, the fifth congressional, figuring out, okay, what's their path? Tiffany is interesting. He's been preparing for this for a while. Um, the expectation, though, was that Sean Duffy would leave to run statewide, most likely. So he's been doing legwork in the district for some time, preparation that Duffy's resignation of the 23rd just moved up his timetable. But he's been doing events. He's lined up support. So he's going to have a lot of Kind of lawmakers in that congressional district who are behind him, um, local folks that he's kind of worked with over the years, that's a benefit for him. Um, Mr. Church and Mr. Riveron, they both have very compelling stories to tell. I mean, Riveron left Cuba when he was five years old. He's a doctor. He can talk with a certain expertise about the healthcare um, system in this country and what's the challenges facing it. The question for them is kind of, what resources can they raise or put into the race to tell, get that message out? Um, Dr. Riveron, people think that he might have some personal resources. They'll be watching that. That's very helpful. In a special election, when you're talking possibly a sprint toward the election, uh, Jason Church, you know, can he raise money for a network of supporters that allows him to get that message out? Uh, those are their challenges. You know, it's, it's going to be a quick race. It's a sprawling district that runs from the St. Croix River in the west past Rhinelander and Wausau to the east. There's no dominant media market, no dominant population center. It's not like you just run, you know, blanket the airwaves in a Madison or Milwaukee with TV ads and reach all the voters in that district. You're going to have to go out there and do digital ads and radio and and work it, you know, kind of town to town and city to city and having surrogates helps, which is another benefit for Tiffany. You know, he's worked this network of supporters for a while. He's got people out there to kind of spread the message for him. Um, it's just a question of, again, Who's going to raise the resource, tell their story, and what the timing is going to be, how much time they have to kind of build things up. It could be a very compacted race and be interesting to watch how those pieces play out. Also, Democratic Party leader Ben Wickler says he thinks there will be a real fight for the seat. 
What do you make of that comment? And does that mean a high profile candidate might emerge for the Democrats? Uh, right now, Democrats have got some people have been looking at it from State Senator Janet Bewley, uh, State Rep Nick Milroy, uh, former State Senator uh, Pat Kreitlow, uh, a lawyer, Christine Bremer Mugley. I mean, there are other folks who their names have floated, but they haven't really had somebody step forward and really grab the range yet to be the nominee. With that whole thing of a special election, it, it, it just depends on the timing, the energy. It is a really Republican seat. We're talking, you know, President Trump won it by like 20 points in 2016. We're not talking a swing seat. So if Democrats have more energy and enthusiasm, sure, they could possibly, you know, make it a real tight race. But so when's the election going to be? Would it be, would Governor Evers call it special election to match up? So the April ballot, you'd have that special election uh, go to the voters. Well, then you also the state Supreme Court race about that day, plus the presidential primary. In theory, for Democrats, they should have higher turnout on that April ballot because uh, assuming the primary is still going on for president, that's going to turn out Democrats. We're not seeing President Trump get much of a spirited challenge right now in that primary. So it's tougher to get enthusiasm for people to turn out and vote if you don't have a race like a, a presidential primary. You put the Congressional District race on the ballot the same day as a, that presidential primary. You're also possibly bringing out more Republican voters for the state Supreme Court race, which is for a 10-year term on the bench. There are all kinds of things like that. What day is best to call it? But if you're a Democrat, if you can find a day that gets the most enthusiasm, get more of your supporters out, sure, you got a shot. The issue for Democrats is going to be in talking to people that even if they can pull off a shocking win and you know the upset in a special election, it would be a very, very difficult hold come November just because of the nature of the district. This is pure Trump territory. This is where he's done very well. Rural areas, rural, white, blue collar. I mean, this is this is Trump territory. So even if you pour resources in to win a special election, extremely tough seat to hold come November, which raised some questions about, again, about, okay, do you really want to take a run at that seat um, or is it, you know, is it worth it? That's WISPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.